0: We turn in God's Word this evening to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 17. As I indicated this morning, there is one more, not just reference to Moses, but there is an actual appearance of Moses that occurs after Deuteronomy chapter 34. It occurs in this 17th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew as we read tonight of the Transfiguration. Let us here then God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. The voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Passage open before you. Let's bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless these words to our hearts and to our minds. Pray that you will give Pastor Bob clarity of speech and thought when he expels and expounds upon your word to us. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Two things from our passage tonight. First of all, Moses' appearance here. What What is exactly going on? Why is Moses here? How could Moses be here? And then secondly, the deeper meaning of the passage that is before us tonight first of all we could answer the following question where does this occur where are they well we're simply told a high mountain it's not named in scripture if you look at Matthew Mark and Luke all three of which record this event uh, the name of the mountain is not recorded so once again you can go on your tour spend your money They'll take you on a bus. You'll go to a place that's called the Mount of Transfiguration. But once again, you have absolutely no clue that that's actually the place because it's not even named in Scripture. So we have no name given for this place where such a remarkable thing occurred. Once again, why? Well, we already understand it, don't we? We already see where Peter's heart is leading him. Let's build some monuments there. Let's build some places there. And, And we can have that shrine. So even though it's identified as a high mountain, it is not named specifically. We are not told any other information other than that. There is something, however, when we think about the when, because we are told specifically here that, and after six days. Mark records the same thing. Mark's words are are almost identical, and after six days. Luke phrases it a little different. Luke actually says it was eight days, but he throws in the word about. So in Luke, you come across, and after about eight days. So that would leave room then for the fact that Matthew and Mark's recording of six days, stated as a fact, fulfills the truth here. Now the question would be, six days after what? Because it's obvious that, that both Matthew and Mark are trying to identify something. They're trying to tell us that these six days and that this event of this transfiguration after six days is important. So six days after what? Well, the principle of scripture is this. You go back to the last text. So our last text would be this. Jesus addressing his disciples, found in verse 24, he's talking to his disciples and he says to them in verse 16, verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." And after six days, Jesus takes them to a high mountain. He takes three. Some, some here will not see death until this event. Now, of course, you have to understand that this event takes place, okay, even before, okay, we we have the whole of of the, what we refer to as the Passion Week. See, because if, if Jesus were to say, you will all see me, the Son of Man, in his glory, that would not be true, because Judas Iscariot is going to kill himself prior to that, prior to the resurrection. So when he says here, some of you will not taste death, The sum is in reference to Peter, James, and John. The seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is reference to the transfiguration. That's why both Matthew and Mark identify it. That's what Jesus is talking about there in verse 28. So six days after making that statement, Jesus takes three of them, some of them, Up upon this mountain, there he is transfigured before them. Third thing to note about Moses' appearance here is that he is not alone. This is not just an appearance of Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there are two others with Moses there. Elijah and Christ. Elijah and Jesus. They are there. It is Jesus who is transfigured. It is Jesus who appearance changes. Now there's all sorts of things and questions that arise in our minds, do they not? As you contemplate this passage, one would think, how did Peter, James, and John know that it's Moses? How did Peter, James, and John know it's Elijah? I doubt very seriously they got name tags on. I don't think that's the way the Lord did this. So there must have been something about their appearance. There must have been something about the way in which both Moses and Elijah appear there along with Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration that must have been clear and identifying to them. Peter, James, and John have never met Moses. They, they, Moses has been dead for thousands of years by this point. Hey, They've never seen a picture. Nobody, nobody was going around with their cell phone taking pictures all over the place. There aren't all sort of selfies running around the internet of Moses on Mount Sinai, of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Nobody, nobody's taking any, there's no portraits at all. The Jews didn't go that route. They didn't go down that route. It's interesting that because of the second commandment, the Jews never go down the route of, of art. It's something they, they've always stayed away from. They, they didn't do that sort of thing. They didn't decorate things. They, they thought all of that was was a violation of the second commandment. So they can't identify him that way. So what is it? We don't know. We're not told. Scripture simply tells us that they were identifiable. They're identifiable because Peter himself says, I want to build those three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So just as Jesus was identifiable to these men, so were Moses and Elijah. How? Never met him before. The Lord in some way made Moses' appearance, made Elijah's appearance so obvious to these three men that there is no hesitation for them to identify who they are. But why are Moses and Elijah there? Now, one could read this passage and you could leave out Moses and Elijah, and once you get to the same point, isn't it all about the transfiguration of Jesus? Isn't that the center point of the passage? Could we not have read this passage without any reference to Moses and Elijah? And obviously, the answer to that question is no. Because if what could have been taught, what could have been said, could have been said, could have been conveyed, without Moses and Elijah being there, the Lord would have done it. But there is something that the Lord wants us to grasp. There is something that God wants us to take hold of about the presence of Moses and Elijah, on that mountain with jesus as jesus is transfigured before them so what is the reason well i have kind of given this away in weeks past but in case you haven't caught it yet okay we, we don't go along with the reason that some would actually put out there and, and I, believe me i don't understand how you can do it because scripture is so clear about this But there are still those out there who will say, in answer to this question, well, you see, Moses and Elijah are both men who didn't die. They both went directly to heaven. And I hope by now you understand, as we've gone through that scene in Deuteronomy 34, uh, on a couple of Lord's days, and again this morning, that that, that's just not true. Moses died. Moses was buried. So even if you want to say... Well, Elijah went right to heaven. It isn't true of Moses, so they don't share that in common. It would seem like if you if you were going to go down that route, you probably would have picked Enoch and Elijah. But the Lord didn't give us Enoch and Elijah. He gave us Elijah and Moses. Plus, I'm going to interject it again, and I w- actually I want you to turn to it, okay? Which is John chapter three. John chapter 3. Go to verse 12. We know where John 3.16 takes us, okay? But we probably don't pay much attention to 12 and 13. John 3.12. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one. Now this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says no one has ascended into heaven. There is no one, Jesus is saying, who has left this earth and has immediately gone into heaven. That's Jesus speaking. Don't get all upset at me because I'm destroying your Sunday school stories. I'm just going by what Jesus says. No one has ascended into heaven. Except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So why are, as we go back to Matthew chapter 17, why are Moses and Elijah there? Because Moses and Elijah... Our representatives. Moses is the representative of the law. That body of Old Testament literature. That body of the covenant. That body of God's commands. That body of those ceremonial laws. Of that moral law. Of those civil laws that God gave. Moses is the physical embodiment. He was the representative of the law of God. Okay? And, and all I'd have to do, okay, would, would uh, at any time show you some sort of caricature, uh, a picture of some individual who looks old, great big beard, long flowing robe, holding two, okay, what look like pieces of stone with arches on them. And you'd say, Moses, you'd, you'd immediately go there. Why? Could, well, he's got the law. It's got to be Moses. In the Jewish mind as well, Moses is the one who is the lawgiver. Elijah is the representative of biblical prophecy. He is the representative of the prophets. So here you have the law and the prophets represented. And there is Christ before them. Moses, the lawgiver, is not transfigured elijah the prophet is not transfigured but christ is what does that mean it means that christ is the one that jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. he is the one who is greater than moses as hebrews said he is the one that is greater than elijah because he is the fulfillment he is the one who perfectly kept the law was in full obedience to the law he is the one who is in full obedience to all of the prophecies that God has given as well. if you heard or listened to to any portion of the the service uh, at seventh this this past Friday afternoon it, it was one of the things that that as I'm sitting there listening, It was kind of a refrain. We don't don't rehearse these things, okay? We don't talk about what we're going to talk about with the other ministers. But it was interesting. It just kept coming back of how often this is the fulfillment of Scripture. His crying out, I thirst, fulfillment of Scripture. Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one that is transfigured before their son. He is the one that is lifted up. So here's Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus. But secondly, consider with me three deeper things that are going on here. What does it tell us that Moses and Elijah appear? On a mountain with Jesus, it means that Moses and Elijah did not cease to exist. Now, it was interesting this this past Thursday in our Bible study, we were we were dealing with with Jesus talking to the Sadducees about the resurrection and. And and as we we discussed it, you know, one of the things that Sadducees believed was the end of existence. You simply lived life till you died and then you stopped existing. There was no afterlife in the Sadducees' view. You lived till you were 78 years old. You lived till you were 80 years old. You lived till you were 50 years old and that was it. If you were obedient in this life, you received the blessings of God. If you were disobedient in this life, you followed around with the curses of God. There was no afterlife. There was no thought of that. But obviously that view is not true. Because Moses and Elijah, who both have not been on the planet for hundreds of years, are still existing. They're still there. Remember God's call to Moses in in Exodus 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus uses that quote to say, You see, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, one of the things to come away from this account of the transfiguration is to say, There is a resurrection. Moses did not cease to exist. He still has an existence. Now how it is that, that as his soul existed in heaven and as he comes to this earth, on this mountain, on this day, he is given a body that Peter, James, and John can identify the same with, with Elijah, I do not have an explanation for except to say there is nothing impossible with God. If God desires to give to Moses some sort of body for here and this appearance upon earth, glory be to God. That's his right to do it. He can do so. It is not outside of God's ability. It's not outside of God's realm. It is not outside of God's person to be able to perform such a thing. Do I need an explanation then? No. No more so than I need an explanation of how did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I don't know, but he did. How did he give blind people sight? I don't know, but he did. How did he make paralyzed people walk? I don't know, but he did. How did he raise the dead? I don't know, but he did. How did he give Moses a body when Moses' soul is in heaven? I don't know, but he obviously did. I believe in a resurrection. In part because on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah still have an existence. They have not stopped existing any more than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, I am their God. And I am the God of the living not of the dead. So one thing to come away from this transfiguration account is, and and maybe you've never done it, is to say, there is an account of the truth of resurrection. Secondly, it reminds us of glorification of Christ. Remember when, a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about the tabernacle, and, and I was going over the coverings of the tabernacle, and on the outside of the tabernacle, you, you had what probably or what commentators tell you are, are probably some pretty ugly hides. They're there for protection, and it's the reminder, as I said then, of the fact that Christ was without form. Uh, the song we sang, uh, "Our God Reigns," He had no stately form okay, that that we should be drawn to Him, right? Peter, James, and John are given the opportunity to look under the tent curtains. The Lord gives them a glimpse on this mountain of what is truly underneath. As you remember underneath? There's that beautiful, beautiful curtain. Underneath all of those coverings, there it is. Peter, James, and John get to see that on the mountain. They get to see Christ in his glory. See, you've probably sometimes wondered, and maybe you've heard it preached, maybe I've even preached it as well. You know, Peter, what are you thinking? Let's build three tents. Wait a minute. Maybe actually Peter was on the right track. Because what is a tent? A tent is a tabernacle. Maybe Peter actually gets it. Maybe Peter actually is, it understands what he's been allowed to see. He's been allowed to see the glory of God. What do you do when you see the glory of God? You give it a tabernacle. You give it a place. They've been allowed to see Christ. They've been allowed to glimpse. What does the passage tell us? Verse 2, And he was transfigured before them. What does that mean? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. There's a brilliance there brilliance that that we're reminded of when the Apostle John receives his revelation it's in the first chapter the one of the Son of Man interesting that that's what the revelation is of when Jesus had just said six days before this there are some of you who will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming this is it this is what Christ is like in his kingdom This is the glorious Christ. They're allowed to see. They're allowed to peek at. Thirdly, there's something else as well going on, and that's a confirmation. This is a story of a confirmation. Why is this event happening? why is it why was it necessary for christ to be transfigured okay yeah it points out resurrection yes it points out the glorification but is there something else going on well there must be because when you come to the fifth verse we read the following while he was he was still speaking when Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The voice doesn't say, Hey, isn't this a wonderful event? The voice says there's something going on here. The voice is a voice of confirmation. Three, one, it's a confirmation for Christ. This, the one that was transfigured before you, the one whose face showed like the sun, the one whose clothes were white. That one, this is my son. Isn't it interesting as we journey ahead in the Gospels that we come to the point hanging on the cross Christ remembers Father Father Then from noon to the ninth hour there is no sun. There is no white. There is no brilliance. There is no Father. But oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the transfiguration happen? Why is the voice speaking? This is my beloved Son. Is it only for the disciples? No. It's also for Jesus. This is who you are. I know where you're going to go. I know what you're going to endure. Remember, you're my beloved son. So that as he journeys out of the hellish anguish of the cross, Jesus can again cry out, Father, into your hands. part of what is happening here is for the sake of Christ. So that the Father is confirming to the Son His love. Even though He knows what has to happen, even though He knows what has to take part, the Father is confirming to the Son, You are my beloved. I love You. Secondly, it's a confirmation for Peter, James, and John. It's preparation, isn't it? Did you note in verse 3 of Matthew 17 what was happening? There is a discussion going on. See that? And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Wouldn't you like to know that conversation? What do you suppose Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about? We know. Mark tells us what it is. They're discussing his death, they're discussing his departure. They're coming to him and saying, We know what you're going through, we know what's going to happen. my guess is, this would just be a guess, Moses is speaking of all the sacrifices that Christ is going to be the fulfillment of. Elijah is speaking of all the prophecies that he will have to fulfill upon the cross. The Psalms, the the prophetic utterances out of Isaiah. They're discussing with him his departure. They're discussing with him his death. That's preparation for the disciples. Jesus has been reminding them often of the fact, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to suffer. There I'm going to die. They don't quite get it. They don't quite understand. They haven't put it all together. God sends them two more witnesses. So you have the mouth of three witnesses. You have the mouth of the lawgiver, you have the mouth of the prophet, and you have the mouth of Jesus the Son. What are they discussing? He's going to die. It is indeed preparation for these disciples as well. But also instruction at the verse again. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Who is it that we're really dealing with? See, suddenly, the the realities who Jesus must be. They're they're beginning to press themselves on them. Do they get it? Do they fully understand? No. But, But how do you explain what we're seeing? How do you explain what is going on? How do you explain this transfiguration? How do you explain this voice? How do you explain this sound? How do you explain this command? Listen. Say okay, so we have an event called the Transfiguration. I, I can see that this was this was something necessary for for Jesus as he as he's about to enter into that passion. I can see how how important it is for for Peter and James and John and the necessity of of really taking hold of who Jesus really is, that he really is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he speaks authoritatively, and they need to listen. They need to pay attention. But what's in the transfiguration for you and I? What's the message that comes to us out of here as well? Here's one need to pay attention to the word of Christ. The Father says, listen to him. That's a good question for us, isn't it? See, kind of a strange question to ask people who are in church on a Sunday night, isn't it? Of course we listen. Do we? Do we hear and not listen? See, listening involves more than hearing. Listening involves not only being able to take in, but it also means to process, and it also means to change. How many times have you not sat down with a child of yours and you don't generally say to your children, hear me when I speak to you. You say to them, listen to me. Why? Because you don't want them just to hear your words. You mean something more. You want them to process that which they are taking into their ears. See, that then becomes the question. Are we listening to Jesus? we really hearing? Are we taking it in? Are we processing it? Are we affecting our lives? Are our lives being changed and altered because of that which we hear from the mouth of Christ? Or do we consider it financial advice from any counselor out there and it's sort of like, oh, you know, they, none of them really know. Or do we really listen to Jesus? The second reason for this event, for us, is it is to remind us of the victory of Christ. This is the end game. That's why I read from that passage out of Revelation as our call to worship. That's where it ends. It ends in victory. It doesn't end in defeat. It doesn't end... In a found tomb. It doesn't end with a dead Savior. It ends in victory. It ends in a glorified Christ. It ends with the Son of Man ruling and reigning victorious over all of life. It speaks to our lives. It speaks to the next event. It speaks to the next doctor's appointment. It speaks to the next email message. It speaks to the next news broadcast. It speaks to us, and it says over and over and over again, He is alive. He has won the victory. And it is that note by which we are to live. We are not to live in fear of this world. We are not to live in fear of an unbeliever. live in the victory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. It has been a blessing going through the life of Moses and seeing all of these ways in which we see his life and the life of Jesus Christ so interrelated with one another. Thank you for for giving to us your word in its completeness, in its fullness, so that we don't have to seek it from anything else. We don't have to seek some special seance. We don't have to listen for some special voice. You have spoken to us fully, completely in the voice of your Son. Help us to listen. and Help us to live today and every day in the victory of the glorified, transfigured Christ, in whose name we pray. God's people say, Amen.